Ezekiel's big vision from God lasted four chapters, from number 8 through 11. And today we're at the end. So how does it all wrap up? And why does some churches probably need to drop the word church from their name? And can the gospel of Jesus be found in the Old Testament book of Ezekiel? You'll find out today on the Cross References Podcast. Welcome to the Cross References Podcast, where you learn how every small piece of the Bible tells one big story, and most importantly, how they all connect to the cross and Christ. Whether you're a newbie Christian or a veteran Bible reader, our goal is that God's Word will make more sense to you after every episode. My name is Luke Taylor, and I am not an economist, even though I think I know more about the economy than whoever is running it right now. Now, I didn't know this next fact I'm about to share with you, so I had to look it up, because as I said, I'm not an economist. When someone wants to file for bankruptcy, but they don't want to lose ownership of their possessions, they can file for something called Chapter 11 Bankruptcy. And that means that they retain ownership of their property and possessions, but they acknowledge that they have a debt they can't repay. And then they have to come up with some kind of repayment plan to pay off their debt over time. Chapter 11 is sometimes called Reorganization Bankruptcy, because you have to propose a plan to reorganize and rejuvenate your business so that you can start making money again and eventually pay off your debts. If the bank agrees, you can be granted a Chapter 11 bankruptcy and remain in ownership of your possessions. Ezekiel's Chapter 11 is also about a bankruptcy. It's not going to work quite that way for Israel. Israel is spiritually bankrupt. It's implied that there's nobody in all of Jerusalem who's following God right now. And so every last person there is under God's judgment. They aren't merely not following God. They've betrayed him. They used to follow him, and they turned their backs. They are spiritually bankrupt. And in this bankruptcy, they won't get to retain their possessions. They're going to lose it all. Everything, their temple, their city, and their lives are all being turned over to their new masters, the Babylonians. Chapter 11 bankruptcy is supposed to provide some relief. Ezekiel chapter 11 is also going to give some relief. The first half of the chapter was quite dark, and that's what we covered two episodes ago. But the second half, it finally gives Israel a way out of the darkness. For probably the first time in this book, there's a light at the end of the tunnel. To hear about it, turn your Bible to Ezekiel chapter 11. The first 13 verses of chapter 11 set up a problem, and these verses are going to give us the solution. If you recall, Ezekiel ended those verses last time questioning whether anybody would be saved. It's similar to the question that the disciples asked Jesus in Mark 10, 26. Who then can be saved? And Jesus responded, With men it is impossible, but not with God. For with God, all things are possible. And when Ezekiel said something similar back in verse 13, God answers that question in a bigger way than Ezekiel even anticipated. Ezekiel is freaking out about the future of his entire nation, and God essentially says, Ezekiel, you're thinking too small. God pointed Ezekiel toward a future day when he would save not just the Israelites' land or their lives, but actually save their souls. 
Ezekiel 11, starting at verse 14, and we're going to read through through verse 18. It says, And the word of the Lord came to me, Son of man, your brothers, even your brothers, your kinsmen, the whole house of Israel, all of them, are those of whom the inhabitants of Jerusalem have said, Go far from the Lord. To us this land is given for a possession. Therefore say, Thus says the Lord God, Though I removed them far off among the nations, and though I scattered them among the countries, yet I have been a sanctuary to them for a while in the countries where they have gone. Therefore say, Thus says the Lord God, I will gather you from the peoples and assemble you out of the countries where you have been scattered, and I will give you the land of Israel. And when they come there, they will remove from it all its detestable things and all its abominations. God gives Ezekiel a very warm response after all this judgment, doom, and gloom so far. Like, I would say, this is the brightest spot that we've seen so far in the book of Ezekiel. For the past ten and a half chapters, it's been judgment, doom, and gloom. Basically, ten and a half chapters of how angry God is with Israel. It's been a rough book so far. Israel was supposed to be a light to the world. It was supposed to be the nation through which the Messiah would eventually come. And then right here, as Ezekiel says, is anybody going to be left of our country after Babylon runs through it. Well, God gives an incredibly positive response. God says, yes, some of you will survive, and you will eventually return to this land, and your nation will be reborn. And not only that, when they return, they'll clean this place up from its idolatry. And not only that, God says, but I'm going to do one more thing in Israel's future too. So let's keep reading. Verse 19, and I will give them one heart and a new spirit I will put within them. I will remove the heart of stone from their flesh and give them a heart of flesh, that they may walk in my statutes and keep my rules and obey them, and they shall be my people, and I will be their God. But as for those whose heart goes after their detestable things and their abominations, I will bring their deeds upon their own heads, declares the Lord God. God will give them a heart of flesh rather than a heart of stone. Chapter 36 also goes into this even in even more detail. Um, I think that's verses 24 through 32 of that chapter, but we're going to get there eventually. Chapter 11 here, by itself, on its own, it's still so beautiful. God's going to remove their heart of stone and give them a heart of flesh, obviously meaning a softer heart. So this is a good thing. Our hearts need to be soft. It's, it's hard for God to reach a hard-hearted person, okay? I'm not trying to make a pun there. I just couldn't think of a better way to say it. Jesus spoke of our hearts being like good soil, that if we're going to receive the word of God and respond the the right way, our hearts need to be good soil. If we're too hard, the word will bounce off, like, like seeds hitting a dry and hardened path. If we're soft and that pliable, mushy soil, that's good. Then the seeds can drop right in and take root, and that's what we're going for. Now, we might have paused at the phrase, heart of flesh. Like, I have to pause because the New Testament, it often warns us about the flesh, meaning our sinful desires. But this passage in Ezekiel, it's not talking about flesh in that way. It's using flesh as a contrast to something made of stone. So when it says heart, um, that's a Hebrew word. It's leb. I'm sure I'm not saying it right. But your leb is the locus of the moral will. It means what you want to do. So Israel is going to have one heart, a single heart. Now, what does that mean? Well, to me, it's saying that they won't be torn anymore between following God and following other things. They'll just be committed to God. Okay, so just one heart, not a a divided loyalty. They'll, They'll be committed to just one thing, which is God. They'll be saved. They'll have the Holy Spirit guiding them. One heart, 
and a new spirit. And this is the same thing that happened to you and I whenever we got saved. We were given a new spirit, and that's the Holy Spirit. Some, some people say they became a Christian because they believed in Jesus. And that's good to believe in Jesus. But remember that it's just the starting point. Um, you know, as James pointed out, even the demons believe in Jesus. So if you say you believe in Jesus, but you decline to follow him, you aren't getting saved, okay? Then you're just being dumb. It's good that you believe, but to refuse to follow the God of the universe, I mean, that's picking a fight you can't hope to win. It's not just believing in Jesus that makes you a Christian. It's whenever you decide to follow Jesus, right? Not just to believe in him, to follow him. That means you have one heart and a new spirit. You're not controlled by the devil anymore. You're not controlled by your flesh anymore. You're not not by your natural desires. You submit to God and what the Bible says. You follow a new spirit. You have a new heart. It's a new locus of the will. As God concluded this segment, he said, they shall be my people and I will be their God. And this is covenant language. It's the first time it's come up in Ezekiel, but it's probably not the first time you've heard it. It's very common. I think especially in the early part of the Old Testament, like as they were establishing covenants with God, it was used in marriage covenants. It was used in legal contracts. And right here, God uses that same language to establish a covenant once again. Well, I don't think he's talking about necessarily restoring the old covenant because that one was broken. He's talking about a future covenant. I think he's referring to the future covenant that he's going to make with mankind down the road. That's the covenant that you and I enjoy. It's not enough to save Israel's land or its nation status or even the lives of its people. God's ultimate goal is to save their souls. God is after their hearts. He doesn't just want outward obedience. God wants to change hearts. I have a three-year-old son, and he likes to challenge me sometimes. He likes to test his limits, you know, just the typical three-year-old behavior. And, and believe me, he can find those limits, usually once or twice a day. Now, I try to explain the rules to him as much as his three-year-old brain can comprehend, because I don't want him to just robotically follow the rules. Now, I mean, that would be simple, okay? It'd be easy to say, just do what I say all the time, or else you're going to get in trouble. You know, that's one way to raise a child. But then they're only following the rules to stay out of trouble. So I try to explain to him why I have the rules I have. Again, he's only three. Um, we've taken care of lots of foster kids. And as much as I could, um, I tried to help them understand why we have the rules. Not just to know what the rules are and just be expected to follow them to a T or else you get in trouble. I wanted them to understand why. So now that I'm even raising my own biological kid, and he's only three, but as much as I can, as much as he can comprehend it, I try to under I try to help him to understand why I have the rules I have. And so, you know, he likes to do things. He loves to stand in the doorway when people are going in and out, you know. But if he does that, he's going to get stepped on or his fingers are going to get smashed when the door closes. And I don't want him to learn that lesson the hard way. So I'm constantly telling him to stay back from the doors. And I tell him why. You know, I want him to understand on the inside why we do or why we don't do certain things. I don't just want outward obedience. I want inward understanding. I want his heart and his head on my side too, not just his body. So it's good to know why. It's good to know why we do things. Um, and we don't always understand why, okay? Now, I will say this. It's important that we still obey God, even whenever we don't understand why, because that's also showing a heart that's soft toward God. My son likes to ask why all the time when I tell him to do something. I don't mind that he asks why, 
But I, you know, here's what I do do. I, I do demand that he obeys before I explain why. Because I'm also trying to teach him that his obedience, it does not depend on him understanding. But I, if I can, you know, if it's convenient enough, I will explain why after he does what I ask. Um, but, I, but like I said, I wait till after he obeys before I explain it. And sometimes he understands and sometimes he doesn't. And, you know, that's okay. Sometimes I understand God's rules and sometimes I don't. But I'm supposed to obey whether I understand or not. God is after our hearts. Not just outward obedience. God cares what's on the inside. And whenever we come to him in submission, he'll give us a new heart and a new spirit. Now we wrap up this entire temple vision. There's just four more verses. And and that bright spot that we just glimpsed in, in the last eight verses, I got to say it's about to go dark again. The main point of this whole vision is that God is leaving the temple. And so in these verses, it's about to reiterate that truth. So Ezekiel 11, starting at verse 22, Then the cherubim lifted up their wings with the wheels beside them, and the glory of the God of Israel was over them. And the glory of the Lord went up from the midst of the city and stood on the mountain that is on the east side of the city. And the Spirit lifted me up and brought me in the vision by the Spirit of God into Chaldea, to the exiles. Then the vision that I had seen went up from me, and I told the exiles all the things that the Lord had shown me. So Ezekiel's last sight in this vision is that he observes the glory of the Lord depart the temple and go to the mountain on the east side of the city. This is the Mount of Olives. And that's a very significant mountain in prophecy for several different reasons. I'll give you three. One, this is where Jesus stood as he gave the teaching on the end times in Matthew 24. Two, this is where Jesus ascended into heaven at the end of the Gospels. And three, the Mount of Olives is where Jesus will return when he comes to the earth the second time. The Bible says Jesus will come down and set foot on the Mount of Olives. It even says this in the Old Testament. Zechariah 14.4, it says, In that day his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives, which faces Jerusalem on the east, and the Mount of Olives shall be split in two from east to west, making a very large valley. When Jesus returns, he splits this mountain in two. In fact, Jesus reshuffles the entire topography of this region of the world. And Ezekiel deals with that um, coming up in the last nine chapters of the book. Those are all prophecies for after Jesus returns. So this is a very significant location. Um, It's a significant location in Ezekiel, in Zechariah, and in Bible prophecy in general. And this mountain is where Ezekiel's grand vision of the glory departing from the temple ends. Now, I have some more thoughts on the departure of God's glory from the temple, but I'm going to save those for our application section in a few moments. So don't go anywhere. This isn't over yet. We'll close down in a few minutes with a quick recap and some personal application of this chapter. Uh, First, let me just ask, do you like fake news? Now, if not, you definitely do not want to check out my other podcast. It's called Fake News, a fiery but mostly peaceful podcast. And on that weekly show, we look at the past week of news stories through kind of a meta-narrative of how the media covered those stories. And so it's a lot of fun. It's, It's more focused on current events. So if you don't like fake news, you definitely don't want to come listen to it. But if you like laughing at fake news... Come join the fun with new episodes of that one each Friday. And then if you have a question on this chapter, you can leave a comment or shoot us an email, crossreferencespodcast at gmail.com. And I'd be happy to take questions or recommendations 
on subjects that you'd like to hear me tackle in the future. So today, just to recap, we concluded Ezekiel's four-chapter vision. This is one of the largest sections of Ezekiel, and we basically have spent all summer on it. Ezekiel was picked up from Tel Aviv and taken spiritually, like, like Ebenezer Scrooge. He was taken on this spy mission or a, just kind of a, as a spiritual observer. He went to the temple in Jerusalem, and that's where he witnessed people worshiping all kinds of idols and, and pagan gods inside the temple. He found women weeping for Tammuz. If you recall, we spent a whole chapter talking about how Tammuz worship can be traced from the Tower of Babel all the way to the Catholic Church of today, and I would say even into the tribulation in the future. Then he saw as these slaughtering angels came out, and they were told that anybody who was still worshiping the true God, they could be marked and set apart, but everyone else was going to be devoted to destruction. And it's implied that Nobody in Jerusalem was receiving the marker protection. That basically every last person in Jerusalem at this time has gone pagan. After all this, God departs from the temple, and that's the most important aspect of this vision. God had resided in the temple ever since it was dedicated. If you even entered into this inner room called the Holy of Holies, you would be struck dead by the presence of God in that room. That's how thickly present that God was in the temple. But no more. God left the temple, his presence lifted up and out, and chapter 11 talks about how the people are so spiritually dead that they don't even notice. They're outside still planning for their futures. They're not even noticing that God has left. And then in the midst of all this, God gives Ezekiel a prophecy about a future day when Israel will be regathered and the people will be given a new heart. But that day is long off. In the here and now, God is leaving. And that's the note the vision ends with at the end of chapter 11. So for today's application section, I just want to revisit this idea of God vacating the temple. I'll mention this too. I, so I'm again broadcasting from the basement. Um, you can kind of hear some of the, the machinery clanking and turning on and all that once in a while. So if I have some background noises, I don't even know yet if it's picking up on the mic. But if, if you hear it, that's what it is. So um, I'm just in a little bit different place right now, a different place in life and a different place physically than I was, you know, when I've been doing the, the podcast in the past. So um, for now, you might just have to put up with that a little bit. Hope it's all right. Uh, so I want to revisit this idea of God vacating the temple. Uh, when the idol worship had gotten bad enough inside the temple, we see that God literally left the building. He says, I'm not being honored here anymore, so I'm going to go. Now, I don't find that surprising. What I find surprising is that he stuck around as long as he did. I mean, God is so much more patient than I am. So much more patient. God is so much more willing, uh, even desperate, I would say, to forgive us whenever we do something wrong. He wants to forgive us. He's so patient to wait for us to get to that point. I mean, if I were God, Jerusalem never would have lasted this long. Ezekiel is a bit shocked sometimes whenever God marks people for slaughter or whenever God strikes someone dead on the spot like he did with Pelatea in the last section that we read of, of Ezekiel. Um, Ezekiel's shocked about that. I'm a little more shocked at how long God waits to do it. <laughs> you know, sometimes people read the Bible either with the judgments that God pronounced in the Old Testament or with the calamities that he's going to strike the world in the future, like in the book of Revelation. They read that and they think God's mean. I pick up my phone in the mornings and I look at what's in the news sometimes. I wonder why Revelation hasn't kicked off already. I mean, God is so much more patient 
than you or I are. He is so much more willing to wait for people to repent. So I need to remember that as I see abominations like this come across my Twitter feed. Her name is Britta Filter, and she is the queen of New York! In case you're wondering what you're listening to, this is a large man dressed as a woman in a revealing outfit, okay? (laughs) Uh, I'll just put it like that, a revealing outfit uh, and makeup, okay? About two and a half inches thick of makeup on his face. This is a drag queen. He's wearing a thong. And I only know that because his skirt is so short, it makes Wonder Woman look like a nun. And you hear this cheering crowd, okay, as the drag queen is introduced and starts to walk down the aisle. Every person in the room stands up and starts clapping for him. And what room are they in, by the way? A church sanctuary. A church full of pews, stained glass windows, a massive pulpit, like it appears to be in some kind of cathedral. And and for whatever reason, they've invited this 36-year-old rotund man who dresses up in what he apparently thinks that women look like. So this degenerate filth that would be more appropriate in a strip club or a gay bar, it's being celebrated in a church that supposedly exists to be a place of worship of God. And I have to say supposedly because... I'm not sure what these people think a church is. Like, if this is what they've decided to use their church for, what even is a church to them? I wouldn't even call this place a church. Like, if church has any definition at all, it couldn't possibly be used to describe this place. Like, a subway station bathroom might as well be called a church. If we're going to call this place a church, and I won't because I think the word church still needs to have some kind of meaning. So, as I said... God is a lot more patient than me. Because whenever I see this, I'm over here saying, Noah, get the boat. It turns my stomach. I have trouble even fathoming that there is anybody who wants to see this. Like, Like, what's going on in some people's minds that seeing this excites them? A large man in a thong, strutting down the aisle of your church, twirling, flashing the crowd that's sitting in the pews where there's children and family sitting. And, And they don't even sit there in horror. They are cheering. Their hands are not going to cover their kids' eyes. They're clapping. They're giving this guy a standing ovation. And I'm like, what am I even watching right now? So whenever I see this, I say God is so much more patient than me. God is so much more patient. Because whatever they're worshiping in this video, it isn't God. And I can't fathom the people who even like this, okay? Like, I have my own personal struggles, my own weaknesses, my own temptations that I struggle with. And I try not to judge other people who have different temptations than I have. You know, I try to have grace and patience with other people's struggles, even for the sins that I don't understand. But whenever I see a large crowd of people get up off their seats for a drag queen in the church— What you're looking at there, that's not someone struggling with their personal demons. Like, this is not a crowd of people who just all coincidentally have the same fetish. This is something spiritual going on here. There is a spirit in that church of perversion and filth. Now, has the Holy Spirit vacated this church? You know, that's not for me to say. But I think we can safely say that the Holy Spirit is not the spirit in charge at that place. There's another spirit running the show. Now, some would look at this and they'd say, 
oh, those people, they're just soft to the LGBT community. That's a heart of flesh instead of a heart of stone. But let me tell you, that is not a soft heart. That's a heart that's very, very, very hard toward God. Because your actions reveal your heart. Out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. If you're cheering for a drag queen, that's revealing a heart that's far, 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 far from God. Very hard toward God. Um, And a little bit less dramatic of an example, but no less dangerous. I saw an advertisement recently uh, for a church in my town. It's something called, it's like the Unity Church is what it's called. I'm not trying to target them for any harassment. You know, you probably don't even know what town I live in. Um, there's probably hundreds of churches called the Unity Church. Well, the one in my town, it's it's pretty liberal and progressive, like as far as churches go. And I'm not sure what tipped me off that it was. Um, I just always had a feeling it was whenever I would drive by it. Like, I don't know, maybe it was because of the name or, or the sign or something like that. But anyway, I see this advertisement for them the other day. So I go and look up the church just out of curiosity. And here is the statement of faith on their on their website or their Facebook page or whatever. Okay. Here's what it says. Unity is a positive, practical, progressive approach to spirituality based on the teachings of Jesus and the power of affirmative prayer. Unity honors the universal truths in all religions and respects each individual's right to choose their own spiritual path. Unity's five basic principles are, and I'll just, I don't know if I'll read all of it, but let me just comment on a few of these. Number one, God is spirit, unbound by human definition of religion. One presence, one power, all good and everywhere present, okay? Now, that's, I guess, pretty similar to traditional Christian belief in the sense that we do believe God is a spiritual being. But but here's why they're saying that. It's because of point two number here. Number two, Jesus was a man who expressed his divine potential and sought to teach all to do the same. We see Jesus as a way shower and teacher. In unity, the word Christ is defined as the divine spark within all humans. Now we need to stop right there, okay? Now we see why the first one, it sounded kind of good, but it was really setting up this second point here, okay? The second point is emphasizing that Jesus was not God. I mean, this is a church saying this, but they are saying that Jesus was not God. They say very clearly, Jesus was a man who expressed his divine potential. So they're looking at Jesus as just a regular person, who basically um, got got as um, close to God as it's possible to get, and so he is showing us how to get close to God in the same way. He's basically a good teacher. All right, that's what they say next. We see Jesus as a way shower and a teacher. You remember that part in uh, it's like it's in all, several of the Gospels, Mark sixteen, I believe. Uh, the disciples say that or Jesus asks them, "Who do men say that I am?" And they're like, oh, you know, and they start listing off all this stuff. Some say you're a prophet. Some say you're a good teacher, okay? It's great to call Jesus a good teacher. I mean, he is a good teacher. But it's wrong to say that is what defines who he is because that's lesser than the truth. Jesus is the Son of God. And whenever Peter says that, he says, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God, Jesus affirms him. You've got it, Peter. Okay, it's great to call Jesus a prophet and a good teacher, and all these other nice things people can say about him. But if you try to say that's all Jesus is, you got the wrong Jesus. Peter professed the truth about Christ. He is the Son of God. And this is a church that very clearly, in their statement of, of faith and beliefs, that's there on like their website. I think I got this off their Facebook on the About section. 
but they don't teach that Jesus was that. They say, I'll, I'll read it again, Jesus was a man who expressed his divine potential. We see Jesus as a way shower and teacher. And this is what they say about the word Christ. In unity, meaning at their church, the unity church, the word Christ is defined as the divine spark within all humans. So see, they've kind of just mysticized Christ, Jesus. They've kind of just mysticized what it is to mean that, you know, everyone has God inside of them. Um, point number three, let me go on to that one. The nature of human beings is that we are each individual, eternal expressions of God. Our essential nature is divine and therefore inherently good. As we awaken spiritually, we learn to co-create a world centered in love and light. Okay, let me stop there again. Like, I really want to focus on where it says our essential nature is divine and therefore inherently good. I mean, um, I hate to say it, but that's not true. <laughs> you know, deep down inside, we're all sinners. Okay, we are all, um, I'm not a Calvinist, but I do like their first point. Um, I, I tend to agree with their first point, which is um, total depravity. Uh, the doctrine that mankind has nothing good residing in us on our own. It's only God who kind of melts our hearts and draws us to him and and can lead us to righteousness. It doesn't mean that we're all as bad as we possibly can be. People can be worse than they are. But we would not seek God on our own. Okay, It's because of the Holy Spirit drawing us to God that we even consider repenting and 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 getting saved and, and trying to be a good person in the first place. That's, that's an act of God working on us. We don't decide to do that on our own. And you see, um, not just in Christianity, but even like in political philo philosophies and ideologies, there are, there's kind of two schools of thought, okay? Is mankind inherently good or is mankind inherently bad? You know, people who are trying to decide um, laws, okay, political philosophies, they, they divide over this question. All right, do we need laws to rein in human activity? Or do laws just limit us and we need to have less laws so that because pe people will basically do right on their own? You know, that's, that's two entirely different philosophies. The more liberal philosophy, it says that, that mankind is inherently good. The more conservative philosophy says mankind is inherently bad. It's true in, in the divisions in Christianity as well. More liberal theology says people are inherently good, and that's why liberal theology tends to say um, they tend to be more like LGBT affirming because they say, oh, well, you were born that way. It's natural to you. So God, if God made you this way, then this is how you—it's you, fine to act that way. Whereas conservative theology says, no, we have original sin. We're born with all kinds of tendencies to sin and— and to do wrong, to obey the flesh, like th that's just the natural state of man. That's not a good thing. And, and God helps us to get control of that, and we have to rein those passions in. So these are two entirely different philosophies of thought. And so we see here, you know, it's easy to say, this Unity Church, in, in their own statement of faith, they're making it very clear. They follow the more liberal path. They say, we believe our essential nature is divine, and therefore inherently good. Whatever you are on the inside, that's inherently good. Okay? That's their interpretation. And you might say, well, how can they read the Bible and come to that kind of conclusion? Well, let's go on to point four. Point four is that the Bible is interpreted as a, as a metaphysical representation of humankind's evolutionary journey towards spiritual awakening. <laughs> so, 
they let me give you like i know that's a lot of big words and mumbo jumbo and wishy-washy stuff let me give you what it boils down to they aren't just going to follow what the bible says okay it's a representation which means they probably think it has mistakes in it i'm sure they believe it has mistakes in the bible because they're not going to follow everything the bible says they say that the bible is you know the words are inspired by god but inspired in the way that you might look at a sunset and be inspired to write a poem about it they don't believe that the words of the Bible themselves actually came from God. And so they see the Bible as something that, you know, it's just, it's kind of a vague roadmap to God. But if you don't want to follow the Bible, if you don't want to read the Bible, you know, everyone has the divine inside themselves and they'll find God on their own. I mean, that's that's really what their, what their basic, um, that's their philosophy. Which is one of those things that make me wonder, why do you even have a church? And we'll get into that later. Let me talk about point five, prayer and meditation. Affirmative prayer is the highest form of thought. It includes the release of counterproductive negative thoughts, as well as holding in mind statements of spiritual truth. Through meditation, we experience the presence of God. Through prayer and meditation, we heighten our awareness and transform our lives. And then they, they say after this, we believe all people are created with sacred worth. We welcome all and do not discriminate. On the basis of race, color, gender, age, creed, religion, or sexual orientation, God and unity leave no one out. And that's—I'll stop there. So in summary, this church looks like it's very welcoming to all. That's what they promote themselves as, as being very open-minded. So it looks like they're very soft. They have very soft hearts. But this actually has a very hard heart toward the things of God. Okay? This would be the test. They say they believe all these open-minded things, but if you walked in there saying you believe in firm, hard truths about God, I bet they'd run you out, <laughs> you know, because they say Christ is the divine spark in everybody. So if you said, no, Jesus Christ is the son of God who walked this earth in a physical form and died for our sins, and he's now the only way to heaven, then you would not fit in at this church. If Ezekiel walked in there, they wouldn't like what he has to say. Because real Christianity rests on firm truths and facts about the nature and reality of God, not on vague affirmations, positive thoughts, affirmative prayer, and a bunch of words that, you know, they sound like big ideas, but they really don't mean anything at all. The Bible is the metaphysical representation of humankind's evolutionary journey. All that is mumbo jumbo, okay? They say everybody can have their own spiritual path, but the Bible says there's only one path to heaven. Now, listen. Only one of those statements can be right, because those are both exclusive statements. One sounds more open-minded. They're actually both quite narrow opinions, okay? Only one of them can be right. If I say there's only one road that you can drive to the town Walmart, and you say every road leads to the town Walmart, we can't both be right about that. One of us is right, and one of us is wrong. It's regardless of how open-minded you try to make it sound. It sounds open-minded to say, oh, all the roads lead to Walmart. You know, that sounds very open-minded, but it could be wrong. It might not be that all roads lead to Walmart. One of those is right. One of those is wrong. They're actually both exclusive statements. And, and this just goes to show that those who call themselves tolerant are often the most intolerant people of all. They can go on and on about coexist and how they tolerate any and everybody. Unless you believe what the Bible says about sexuality, then they won't tolerate you. They won't tolerate your so-called intolerance, 
But that just makes them as intolerant as anybody. Okay, because let's talk about what tolerant means. It means you're willing to treat the people that you disagree with, with respect. So when an LGBT affirming Christian says that they're tolerant because they affirmed gay lifestyles or, or drag queens or whatever perversion that they accept, that's not even real tolerance because they don't disagree with those people in the first place. Like they accept the LGBT lifestyles. So they're not tolerating it because they love it. They celebrate it. You can only tolerate something that you don't agree with. But when they call Christians bigots and all kinds of mean names, that's not being respectful or tolerant. They are the most intolerant people of all. They are the bigots that they accuse everybody else of being. So do I look at churches like this that are false teachers? Um, Do I look at these false teachers and say that they're faking it? Um, Do I think that they are sincere about what they believe? I would actually say most of them are probably sincere. They look to me to be very sincere in what they believe. But guess what? Being sincere has nothing to do with the rightness of your belief. Being sincere just means that you mean what you're saying. But that does not make you right. I mean, look at what Ezekiel found as he was going through the temple. Back in chapter 8, there were women weeping for Tammuz. So weeping, that means their emotions were in it. They were sincerely following this false god. But that didn't make their belief okay. It was still wicked. Look at all those people standing up and clapping for the drag queen. They they seem pretty sincere to me. For their sake, you know, I hope they aren't really excited by, by that. I hope they're all just really good actors. But from what I saw, it looked pretty sincere. There was something about the drag queen that made these people stand and clap. So you can believe that all roads lead to heaven with no evidence to back that up. You can be totally sincere in that belief. You can believe in something that makes absolutely no sense and be 100% sincere. You can be sincere and be sincerely wrong. Now, if you think I've gotten way off track with (laughs) all this talk of sincerity and tolerance, I want to bring it back around now to Ezekiel, because this is all relevant to what has been happening in Israel as revealed in chapters 8, 9, 10, 11. Israel has given up on following the one true God. They're worshiping a litany of false gods. And they're using God's house to say, anything goes. You know, build your own religion. Everyone gets to follow their own path. It's false doctrine. And God says, you know what? By this point, this is really not my temple anymore. I'm out. Now, it took a lot to get God to that point, but Israel finally did it. They finally pushed him there. And and I'd say the same about some churches today. There's probably churches today that just need to take the word church out of their name entirely. There's churches that are so far from the mission and purpose of God, like I honestly question why they even bother to exist. Okay? Um, <laughs> that church up there that I was talking about before, the Unity Church, it's like, okay, so you believe everyone's inherently good, we all find our own way to God, you know, in the end. Why do you even bother to have a church? It just it doesn't make sense to me. I will say, that's one part of it that I don't understand. <laughs> it doesn't make any sense to me. I mean, at least I understand most churches' mission, you know, to reach the lost and get them saved. But if you already believe that everyone just finds their own path to heaven, then I'm like, okay, so why do you even bother to meet? So I, I guess I'm just thinking out loud here, but I don't understand it. I understand my mandate as a Christian. It's the Great Commission. It's why I go to church. It's why I share my faith. It's why I do this podcast, because I have to reach the lost. 
You see, just like Israel, we are all spiritually bankrupt. We have a debt that we can't pay. We can't get by with reorganizing our lives or making up for it over time with good actions and, and trying to be a good person. No, that won't get it. If we want God's forgiveness, what we have to do is declare bankruptcy with God. We have to acknowledge that we have a sin debt which we could never pay back no matter what we did. We have to trust in Jesus for our forgiveness that he paid the price to buy us back. And when we do that, not only do we get forgiveness, we lose a heart of stone and are given a heart of flesh, a heart that's sensitive to the Holy Spirit. Well, thanks for listening to the Cross References podcast. This has been Luke Taylor reminding you, when I kept talking about how God is so much more patient than I am, by the way, that's because the problem is with me. I need to be more patient with other people to have a chance to turn around and repent because God was first patient with me. And I'm eternally grateful for that. Oh,